Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Recently, I read an article that simply was entitled this, The majority of self-identified Christians don't believe that the Holy Spirit is real. The majority of self-identified Christians don't believe the Holy Spirit is real. Uh, The vast majority of Americans, 69%, actually would self-identify as Christians. Uh, That's a fairly generic thing. Often we call that uh, census Christian. In other words, when you get a census, you kind of check off which box most applies to you. Maybe you're not Buddhist or Hindu or Jewish or or, or Judaism uh, or Islam. And so you check off the box of Christian because that's the sort of category that you belong to. And so sometimes we call that census Christianity, that you simply check off the box. A number of people, about uh, 28%, are self-identified evangelicals. That's sort of a not more narrow category than Christian. Between there, about 35% of the population would identify themselves as born-againers. Maybe that term is new to you or you're not familiar with it. It actually comes from John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, there needs to be a whole life change that can only happen through my spirit for you to belong to God. And Jesus says, you have to be born again. He didn't really intend that would be our religious lingo. Uh, It has. And about 35% of the population would identify themselves with that label of born again. The smallest category is a category called integrated disciples. An integrated disciple is a person who actually allows the, or has such beliefs that the Bible is the accurate and reliable word of God, that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, and just creator of the universe, who still rules the universe today, and that every moral choice either honors or dishonors God. And so this is a group that their belief in God as the one who rules actually is integrated into their lives as they make moral decisions, as they make life choices. And that accounts for 6% of the population. Here's what I find fascinating. Of those who identify as being simply generic Christian, 58% believe that the Holy Spirit is not real, living, or a being, or is not a real living being, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. And so again, about 70% of the population claims to be Christian, but fairly significant percent, 58% of that group would say the Holy Spirit is not a real, actual being, but is sort of this symbolic force of God's power, presence, or purity. Actually, fascinatingly enough, the number of people who claim the title of born again, a larger percentage of them actually would believe that the Holy Spirit is not a real being. But here's what really saddens me. Here's what really saddens me. Of the 6%, of those who are integrated disciples. In other words, they have a fairly good hand 
on the fact that God is ruler, that God reigns, that all of his truth infiltrates their decisions. Of that group, which is about 6% of the population, 40% of them actually still hold that the Holy Spirit is not a real being. We're in a series called Jesus Continued from John chapter 14 through 16. And in this passage, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And friends, it makes me incredibly sad and causes great concern that those who actually have sort of an integrated belief of God woven into their lives, nearly half of them don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a real being. Instead, he simply affords some kind of power that energizes us and that alone rather than being an actual being. In other words, when Jesus says in John chapter 14 that I'm sending the Holy Spirit for a significant number of people who have a pretty foundational belief in God, that falls on deaf ears. It's something they don't believe. And I just got to tell you, if we're going to be the kind of people that God desires for us to be in this world, if we're going to be people who love one another, if we're going to be people who walk in obedience to the God of heaven, if we're going to be people who have his fruit of love and joy and kindness and patience flowing from our lives, we have to have a more robust understanding of the Holy Spirit. It deeply saddens me that such a significantly high percentage of those who seem to have a fairly clear understanding of Scripture, that they don't really believe the Holy Spirit's a real and actual being. Well, you can turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We encourage you to bring them. If you didn't, there's certainly one in the chair in front of you. You can grab that. And uh, as always, if you want to grab your little message notes book, I'm going to be drawing something. So you want to put that in your notebook. It's amazing. And so you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. We're going to take a little bit of time and uh, just kind of review a little bit. But I want you to have the big picture perspective because in some ways, what happens in John 14 through 16 can be a little bit confusing sometimes. Like, which is Jesus talking about? He talks about when I leave you and then the Holy Spirit's going to come and, and kind of like, what's the grand timeline of that? And so just want to make that to be, because friends, again, like this, this is a big deal. This isn't a given that people understand the Holy Spirit and who he is and when he come, comes to indwell us and that sort of thing. And so we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. I want to kind of do a little bit of review. Back here, all of this we said is, is about the presence of God. And all the way to the beginning, obviously, God exists on either end of this continuum. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son exist eternally on either side of this continuum. But here we have a created presence. And what we mean by that is God creates humanity. He creates Adam and Eve, and he is present with them in the garden. We are his creation. God creates Adam and Eve, and he's fully present with them in the garden. He walks with them. He talks with them. That's who we're designed to be. You're designed to live in the presence of the holy God. That's who you are created to be. That chapter three in Genesis, we find that there's a separated presence. That's kind of 
not well written, but you get the idea. A separated presence. Adam and Eve say, God, we're going to be autonomous. We're our own provider. We don't need your presence with us. We can run and rule our own lives. We've got it figured out. And so our presence from there on out with God becomes separated. And that impacts every area of our world. It impacts our environment, impacts health and politics. It impacts our emotions, our minds, our bodies, our feelings, our souls, our spirits. This separated presence from God impacts every little atom of this universe. And so the whole story in the Old Testament is God kind of working with his nation, Israel, who he says he's going to bring restoration and redemption through. Periodically, you see the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But once in a while, we sing a song simply called, There's Another in the Fire. That references the book of Daniel, where the king actually sees this fourth figure in the fiery furnace. And as best as we can tell, that fourth figure is actually the person of Jesus pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem when he's a baby, some kind of visible sighting of him in the Old Testament. It's pretty amazing and it's pretty cool. There's a couple places where that happens. Happens with Gideon as well. Happens with Abraham. He's welcoming some visitors. And so once in a while, just a few times in the Old Testament, you actually have these visible sightings of the second person of the Trinity before Jesus is actually born in flesh on the earth. You also have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming on different people to empower them and equip them to do different things. He's empowering and equipping them to speak. So all throughout the Old Testament, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as well. Well, eventually, Jesus comes down, and this is God in flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus descends from heaven. He's born in Bethlehem's manger, and he grows up and he teaches. And eventually, you probably are aware of the story. Jesus dies on a cross. He's crucified to remove the separation that happened back here. This cause of separation, our evil, our sin, our darkness, the curse of sin was actually placed on Jesus who descended from heaven and stood in our place and showed that curse and that separation of sin so that our relationship with God could then be reconciled. Well, Jesus eventually, three days later, he is raised to life. He's resurrected from the tomb. But this is where John 14 through 16 comes in. He says, hey, in a little while, I'm actually going to ascend back up into heaven. I'm going to ascend back up into heaven. Just a little time out here. John 14 through 16 takes place right here. It's literally on the evening before Jesus is crucified. This is the conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. And so he says in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled because he knows what's going to happen in the next few hours. He also knows that even after he's raised from the dead, he's going to ascend back to the Father in heaven. He spent three years with these guys. I mean, he's probably about 28 or 29, 30, somewhere around there when he was crucified. And so he had spent, you know, a number of years on earth, but he had spent three years with his disciples. And so he tells them, hey, like I'm going to ascend. But then the other part of John chapter 14 through 16 is this. When I ascend to heaven, I'm not going to leave you alone. 
You're not going to just be hanging out here by yourselves, but instead I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you. I'm going to ascend, but the Holy Spirit will come and indwell you. And just a little bit of a timeline here. Uh, We know this, the Holy Spirit coming down, happened 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. So you get a little idea of the timeline here. About 50 days. uh, Ascension, we're not actually told exactly when it happened. Probably 40 days. Might have been a 10-day gap between Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit's coming to indwell us. And then Jesus also says, by the way, at the end, I am going to come back and there's going to be a fulfilled presence. This is, by the way, I forgot to draw this. This is a redeemed, redeemed or restored, restored presence. Jesus comes down. He dies on the cross for his presence to be redeemed and restored with us. He ascends back into heaven. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And Jesus, at some point in the future, I'm going to return. And then my presence will be fully with you. There will be full restoration, full redemption. Once again, there will be full presence with me among you. So right this very moment, we're actually living somewhere in here. And we don't know whether we're here. We don't know whether we're here. We don't know for one second did Jesus come. And we don't know whether we're a thousand years. Like we don't know. But what we do know is exactly what Jesus told us. We are living here after Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to indwell those who are followers of me. Just a couple of uh, verses that we've looked at along the way. Jesus says uh, early on in John chapter 14, Verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Remember that I will come back. I will come back and my presence will be fulfilled with you. John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the advocate to be with you. We'll dive into that a little bit more later. Verse, uh, again, verse 16 and 17, I will not leave you as orphans, the ascension. I'm not going to leave you as orphans when I ascend. I'm not just going to take off and you're by yourself. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. Before long, listen to this, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I also will live, because, you will, because I live, you will also live. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 20. This is referring to Pentecost. On that day, Pentecost, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. When the Holy Spirit comes, the light bulb is going to go on and you're going to understand much more clearly the dynamic of this whole truth of who I am and God's presence with you. Well, those are some pretty big things. That's a pretty big deal. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to look at at three aspects to what Jesus says is going to kind of like happen in this time period. 
about us, our relationship with the Holy Spirit, as he looks at his disciples, these are three things that he makes clear about with the season of time that we're in right now, that I'm in, that is what it's going to look like. Number one, Jesus makes clear that this is kind of a path. This time right here is sort of a path and a process. But where does that come from? Well, where that comes from is simply this. In verse 22, we're going to kind of pick up at verse 22 and, and dive deeply into that. Uh, verse 22 says this, Then Judas, by the way, it's not Judas Iscariot. Uh, we're told a list of disciples back in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. You can check that out if you like. There was one disciple that was named Judas Iscariot. He was the one that betrayed Jesus. There was also another one, Judas the son of James. Luke tells us that. And so some people also think that was Thaddeus because he's named, he has that name in a different gospel. Um, so it's not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. Uh, here's Judas's question to Jesus. But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus is making clear, hey, my Holy Spirit is going to be shown, it's going to show to you who I am. And so Judas has this question of, Jesus, how does that work? How's that going to be impressive? And kind of here's the background. It's a little bit hard to understand, but, but here's what the background of what seems to be happening. Judas is saying, Jesus, we thought you were going to come and establish this massive kingdom. Like we thought you were going to come and rule and reign and set everything straight. We followed you. If you know from reading the gospels, the disciples were like, hey, can we be in positions of power with you and you rule and reign? Like, if you're going to rule and reign, can we be right beside you? And so they're still thinking that Jesus is going to get rid of the Roman government. Jesus is going to make everything nice and smooth. Jesus is going to rule and reign, and they get to be a part of it. So Jesus is saying, like, if the Holy Spirit is going to simply be with us and show us you, how is that going to impact the world in such a significant way? How is that actually going to have the impact that we're looking for? It's, it's kind of like this thought process that John records earlier in John chapter 7. And I love this. I just love the honesty of the gospel writers. Jesus' brothers really didn't believe in who Jesus was. And so in John chapter 7, we, we find this. Jesus' brother said to him, Jesus, why don't you leave Galilee and go to Judea? And here's what they're thinking. Galilee was this little backwater town. Like nobody important was in Galilee. If you wanted fame, if you were going to impact the world, if you were going to be a world influencer, you didn't hang out in Galilee. And so Jesus' brothers kind of like almost to kind of nudge him a little bit because they were doubtful. of said, like, why are you hanging out in Galilee? Go to Judea. We live, you know, 50 minutes or whatever from New York City. Like if you want, if you want to be somebody, like don't hang out in somewhere where nobody's going to notice. Like, find the cameras, find the lights, find the action, go there, find where the people are, go there, go to New York. That's why people go to New York City, right? Like, that's where the action is. That's where the hub is. If you want to get noticed, go there. And so, disciples saying, like, Jesus, get out of Galilee. Go to, here's what he says. There's more people there. That's literally what we recorded in John's gospel. Jesus leave Galilee, go to Judea. There's more people there. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Like if you're going to make this splash, like go get it. Go where the people are. Make some waves. Make it happen. It seems to be the same mindset that Judas has. Like, 
so how's this going to happen? Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. What Jesus seems to be doing is saying this, Judas, I realize that you want me to show myself to the world, make a big splash. Interestingly enough, when Jesus was raised from the dead, man, if I would have been him, I would have went, went straight to Herod and said, like, like I'm your worst nightmare. Like I would have went to the guys who pounded the nails in my hands at the cross and said, like, look who you're dealing with now. Like, like that's, that's me. Like, like I would have, like I would have gave him, given some people a shock that day. Like, right? Like, come on. Like, seriously? Jesus says to him, you know what's most important, Judas? What's most important is I'm going to show myself to those who love and obey me. You know, often in my mind, I can kind of be at the same place where the disciples are. Like, man, Jesus, the darkness seems to be palpable. There seems to be so much off and so much wrong in our world. There seems to be so much that's got to be straightened out. Like, are you kidding me? Why don't you do something? Why don't you make yourself more obvious? Anybody with me on that? Well, like, don't you just kind of wish? Like, God, you've got all power. Why don't you shake this thing up a bit? Why don't you make yourself a bit more obvious? Like, if you're going to bring your kingdom, why don't you give it some more help? And I could probably give you some suggestions of how to do that. Like, make it more visible. Make it more active. Make it happen now. Like, get some people shaking a little bit. And Jesus says, you know what? What's important to me is your love and obedience. I'm going to be at work in this world through my Holy Spirit indwelling you, little Nathan Tucky, so that you can live a life of love and obedience to me. Friends, I don't know where you're at, but the Holy Spirit's work in this world is not necessarily about turning political parties around or turning politics around or maybe even turning some moral issues around, even though we've got lots of things to cover in all those areas. You know what the Holy Spirit's primarily after? Is your love and obedience to the Father in heaven. Doesn't that make it simple? Look, what your primary call to is not to change the world, is not to make a big splash, is not to wow with God's divine power. What God is after is your love and your obedience to him. That's what he's after. You know, sometimes I think about in the last few years, there's been some failures in religious leaders. You think of pastors or speakers or people who are really well known. And people that I would say are really kind of like push the cause of God forward in this world. And sometimes I wonder if, if maybe we as kind of a larger church, not just Southridge, but like a church at large, 
have become more focused on the cause of God than the kind of characters that he calls us to be. That we're a little bit more concerned about pushing the movement of God forward. And we don't pay quite enough attention to God, do I simply love and obey you? Do I walk in obedience to you? And by the way, might be some confusing words here and a little bit later on where Jesus talks about love and obedience. And what he's saying is this. He's not saying that in order for me to love you, you have to obey you. What he's saying is love and obedience always come together. You know, a bird doesn't have to be told, go fly. Flying doesn't make a bird a bird. A bird flies because it already is a bird. It's already a bird, and therefore it flies. It doesn't prove that it's a bird by flying. It's all, it already has bird DNA. It simply expresses that as flying. An airplane is not a bird, even though it flies, because an airplane does not have bird DNA. A bird flies because it's a bird. And so when Jesus says, you know, those who love me, obey me, he's not saying, you need to obey me in order to, for my father's love to be toward you. What he's saying is, those who love me, the natural outflow of their life is going to be obedience. They're going to, be, they're going to obey because I already love them. They're going to obey because I already show compassion and grace and love toward them. So, this is where we are. And man, if you're anything like me, Sometimes I want big, earth-shattering movements of God to happen in this world. I really do. And, and I guess we should. We all should. But so often we're kind of drawn to that. We're kind of drawn to changing the world. And Jesus sets Judas straight. He says, you know what? I'm going to reveal myself to those who are my followers because they love and obey me. In other words, as you move forward in love and obedience to God, God will show you the next step of love and obedience that he wants you to take. Be sensitive and open to loving and obeying him now because once you do that, there will be yet another step of love and obedience that he will lead you on toward. Love and obey, that's the path. Secondly, Jesus talks about the person of the Holy Spirit. There's this path, there's this process. And then there's the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, all this I've spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Uh, earlier on, he already mentioned the Holy Spirit and the advocate once. A couple things here. Number one, notice that the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus says this, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. He says the Holy Spirit is a whom. It's not just a force. It's not just an energy. It's not just a positive vibe. The Holy Spirit is actually a person, a real live person. Secondly, he identifies him as the advocate. Uh, that word there is actually paraclete. You might have heard that. It's kind of made up of two different kind of segments. Para is the prefix. Klete comes from the word kaleo, parakaleo. Para is the idea of, of long beside. Think of, of the word parallel. We, we use the word parallel to talk about parallel lines, lines that are next to one another. That's the same prefix there, para, parallel lines, paraclete. Kaleo, to call. And so Jesus is saying, I'm sending one who's called to be alongside of you. 
You might have a translation that translates that differently. Sometimes it's comforter, helper, encourager, something. It's because it's a little bit hard to capture all of the various senses and connotations of this word. Advocate is another translation that the NIV uses. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called to be alongside of you to be my presence with you. Notice it also references the Holy Spirit. A couple things come out of that. Number one, notice the Holy Spirit is holy. Sometimes we forget that. It's basic. Holy gives a sense that this Holy Spirit has transcendence. He's not just a magical force. He shouldn't simply be reduced to your emotional well-being. Shouldn't be simply reduced to positive vibes or positive energy. No, the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. He is God himself. He's transcendent. He simply can't be reduced to my positive emotions or feeling. He supersedes that. And then he's also a spirit. Uh, Throughout scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament, the word spirit is is basically the same word as, as wind or flow or air. And so he's transcendent. He has, he's defined as God. We sim- can't simply borrow the Holy Spirit and say, attach the Holy Spirit to this emotion or that emotion or my feeling or my well sense of well-being. No, it's, it's the Holy Spirit, friends. And yet he's a spirit. Last week, we talked a little bit about the swirl of the Trinitarian activity. Interestingly enough, uh, somebody just a few days ago said, man, like this week, swirl was on my mind all of the time. So when I stirred my coffee, I saw a swirl and I thought of the Trinity. When I ate ice cream, I thought of swirl and thought of the Trinity. So whether you eat ice cream or coffee, think of, think of the Trinity. There's a swirl of divine activity. There's a swirl of divine activity. And so Jesus is saying, yes, he's holy, he's transcendent, and yet he's with us. His activity surrounds us. What else? He will remind you, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Earlier on, when John refers to the advocate earlier on, he calls him the spirit of truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is about reminding us of the truth of who Jesus is. That's what he does. Uh, initially, this, Jesus was talking to his disciples. Probably the primary application was uh, these disciples who heard him say this, they were going to end up recording some of the Gospels. And Jesus was saying, my Holy Spirit will bring to your mind that's what, that which you should write in the Gospel record. By extension, he's also saying to us, he will remind us of the truth of who Jesus is. Maybe just one little illustration of, of how that works. This week, when I was kind of reading and praying, and one of the authors, commentators, kind of prompted me in this, and it just really freshly dawned on me, friends, and it's just, I don't know, maybe this is old hat, but it was just freshly dawned on me, why the Holy Spirit came at this point to indwell us. And, and here's the kind of the Holy Spirit enlightening moment that I had. He is called the Holy Spirit. The presence of God in the Old Testament was in the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies. And it was a special place. It was a place 
that could only be entered by one person one time a year with sacrifices and all the rest. For the Holy Spirit to indwell you, listen to this, for the Holy Spirit to indwell you, listen to this, means that you have to be fully cleansed. The Holy Spirit is not found where there's the least little bit of sin. Now, you still sin, but you also have the righteousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit could not come before the cross because we were not yet cleansed. The Holy Spirit can only indwell, can only inhabit a person if they have been first cleansed by the cross. It just felt like fresh air on me this week. That means if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit because you've received Christ as your Savior, because you've embraced Him taking the cost of your sin, you are a thousand percent cleansed. You're clean. You are the cleansed temple of God. Don't let anybody tell you something different. Don't let your emotions tell you differently. Don't let your guilt about the past tell you differently. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a 100% cleansed, clean, pure temple of God. And you are only that because Jesus took the curse for your sin. You are only that because Jesus removed your sin and gave you his righteousness. You are cleansed. And then second thought was this. If I am the living, breathing, cleansed temple of God, I want to live that way. I really do. If I'm the living, cleansed temple of God, I want that temple to be pure and fit and clean for God's presence to live through. You know, often we think about that in sexual terms, and that's, that's fine. It's great. It certainly has application. Friends, when you, when you watch TV, you do that as a cleansed temple of God. When you drive your car, you are the living, clean temple of God. Where I kind of went with that this week is just, you know, my brain is in my body. And so it's part of who I am. Like, God, like, I don't want to pollute my brain with less than Christ-exalting, God-honoring thoughts. I often, just in my space, just to be honest, I often tend to battle like negative thoughts, just like kind of like pessimistic thoughts and, you know, just thoughts of defeat and that kind of thing. And like, ah, like that is so dishonoring to think negative or pessimistic or defeated thoughts when I am the living, cleansed temple of God. May the thoughts that go through your living and cleansed temple be thoughts that are true and pure and beautiful and victorious. Why? Because you're in Christ. You are in Christ. So may every thought, may every action that you engage in be fit for who you are as the cleansed temple, pure before God. That's the Holy Spirit's work. That's who he is. Notice 
He says he's, he'll uh, lead you into all things. Again, the all things there isn't just like, you know, so you don't have to study for your biology test. This is not what he means by the all things. What he's talking about is the all things that empower and enable you to be the kind of person that God wants you to be. So friends, listen, this week, you are a holy, cleansed, pure temple of the living God. May your actions of your body, may the thoughts of your brain, may the desires of your heart flow from a temple that's cleansed and pure before God. Lastly, Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace. He talks about the path. He talks about the person. Then he talks about the peace. He says simply this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I love that. When Jesus says that, he's not talking about some sort of detached sentimentality. Actually, we're told later on that Jesus was greatly troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was greatly troubled. What that's talking about is, is this full confidence that Jesus had that his Father in heaven was fully in control of every moment of his life. You know, the next few verses talking about the fact that Jesus was obedient to the Father. At one point there, it says that Jesus, the Father is greater than me. What he's talking about there is not that the Father is greater than in essence. Jesus is not saying that the Trinity isn't true. Jesus is saying that the Father is greater in, than me in the sense that I subordinate myself to the Father in heaven. If you get pulled over by a police officer, in one sense, it's appropriate to say the police officer is greater than you. He's not greater in you than person. You're both human beings. He's not greater than you in person. And so that's not what Jesus is saying either. But the police officer is greater than you in terms of the law. And so Jesus is saying, I have given myself fully to the Father in heaven because I trust his plans. I trust his will. I'm going to submit myself to him. I'm going to give myself fully to him, knowing that he is fully in control, knowing that he has everything in his hands. And Jesus, that's the peace that I have. And I'm going to leave that with you. I'm going to leave with you the peace that everything is in the Father's hands. I'm going to leave you with peace that you can give yourself to whatever the Father is doing in your life. I'm going to leave you with the peace that God has all things under his sovereign care, under his sovereign control, and you can give yourself in obedience and submit yourself to him. I'm going to give you this peace that comes from full, 100% confidence of the Father in heaven. I give you my peace. See, the world's peace is always contingent on what you do. If you have enough financial security, then you get peace. If you accomplish enough, then you get peace. If you accomplish these objectives, then you get peace. Jesus says, no, the peace that I have comes from knowing that all things are under the Father in heaven. And he's loving toward all. He's over all. He's ruler of all. My peace I leave with you. I'm going to ask Gabrielle and our band to come out. And they're going to close us with a song that simply 
reflects on God's presence with us. God is present with us. He created us for his presence. We were separated from his presence through Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Through the cross, there's redeemed and restored presence. God says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt until the day that there's fulfilled presence. Jesus came. He's Emmanuel. God with us. God with you. Friends, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The person of God through Jesus Christ is with you and in you. Live in his presence. Love and obey him. Receive his peace, knowing that all things belong to the Father in heaven and all things are under his mighty hand. Jesus did not leave us as orphans. He's come to us. He's with us. His Holy Spirit is in us. His Holy Spirit's in you. If you've embraced Jesus as your Savior. And if you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that. Say, God of heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to remove the curse of sin in my life. Thank you for being raised from the dead. I accept your presence with me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and sing this. And let's sing it with a sense of confidence and conviction. Uh, let's sing it with a sense of affirmation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the Spirit's presence with us.
God, we are standing in your presence. You are here. We stand in your glory. We stand in the divine swirl of Trinitarian activity. Your Holy Spirit continues Jesus' presence with us. You are here. We stand in your glory. Thank you that we are cleansed, clean temples of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that your peace is with us. This week, may we live as cleansed, pure temples for your spirit. prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. Let me read you these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen. God bless.